Hello, and welcome to Wonder Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey, and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. Each episode, we pick an area of agriculture or food production that confuses a lot of people and try to get Hallie to explain it. This week, we are focusing on bees, and we have help. Yes, we are joined this week by Julia Wenzel. Hi there. Hey, Julia. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It is so nice to have you on, Julia. Julia and I went to the same graduate program, and it is awesome to hear from you. We haven't talked in a while. Yeah, it's been too long. So uh, <laughs> Julia and I have never spoken. Um, so before we get started about bees, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, as Hallie mentioned, I am a master's student in international agricultural development at UC Davis, which is where Hallie and I met. Um, I'm mm -hmm. just finishing up my program and my focus has been in developing experiential learning opportunities in agriculture. Uh, and most recently that work has sort of taken me to putting together a hands-on beekeeping practicum that has been offered to UC Davis students. And that's been serving as a case study for me, kind of looking at different ways to incorporate hands-on learning into uh, what we learn and teach others about agriculture. Nice. And how, how did you get into bees and beekeeping? I don't actually know that stuff. <laughs> it actually um, was sort of a byproduct of my Peace Corps service. Um, I was in the oh. Peace Corps in Paraguay um, as an agriculture volunteer. And mm -hmm. they really promote um, teaching communities about beekeeping because it's such an easy way to make a little money on the side if you're a smallholder farmer. Uh, it requires mm -hmm. very little startup capital, very little equipment to get going, and then honey can be sold for quite a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. So when I started the Peace Corps, they gave us some crash courses in beekeeping, and I just sort of fell in love with it and got to uh, teach it a bit and learn a lot more myself. And then when I came back to the States, I got to connect with some of the entomologists at UC Davis, who taught me a lot more about the sort of more American context, which is quite different um, than beekeeping in a lot of the developing world. So from there, I've gotten to learn a lot more um, about things on this side of the border. Well, that sounds very cool. Yeah. As much as I've heard about it, and I've heard Hallie go on about it a little bit, maybe more than a little bit, and I just wasn't listening. I don't know. <laughs> Are we actually really losing bees? And why does that matter? <laughs> why does that matter if we lose bees? And are we are we really losing them? I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, it's that's a, um, a straightforward question that has a complicated answer. The short answer is yes, we are definitely losing bees and it matters a great deal. Um, I think even in studying agriculture, we often overlook the pollination aspect of um, growing food, but they estimate at least one in three bites of food that you eat are actually um, an outcome of something pollinating something at some point. So the more we lose our pollinators, the, the more precarious our agricultural system actually becomes. Um, I do think it's easy to assume that when we're talking about bees disappearing, we're just talking about the honeybees that we recognize that uh, we see people keeping, you know, in cute hives and they're very charismatic and we see them in the news quite a lot. Uh, but actually, there are about 20,000 species of bees. Um, there are a number of pollinators that are not just bees. And the native pollinators um, that we are, are talking about when we're looking at that broader population are actually even more at risk and I think get a lot less attention. 
So that's where it starts to become a really complicated answer to your question. Yeah, that's such a huge number one in three bites. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick, if I'm farmer, you know, big, small, whatever, and I'm, you know, I go out and I plant my food and I apply whatever fertilizer or pesticides, you know, organic, whatever that I, I think I need, bees are still going to be an important part of the equation. Absolutely. Um, and it definitely depends on the crop. Uh, different crops are pollinated in different ways. Um, some of our food crops don't require pollination. You know, a lot of the leafy things that we're eating um, don't necessarily need to be pollinated in order to produce the, the food part of that plant. But a lot of our crops do require pollination. Anything that makes a fruit or a nut, uh, that's going to have been pollinated in order to successfully do that. Uh, some plants are wind pollinated. Um, but some require a visit from some kind of pollinator from flower to flower in order to effectively produce fruit. Yeah. And that can even include grains. Totally. Yeah. Which is a huge part of, um, I think, where that number comes from, of how many of the bites of food we eat are actually requiring pollination. Yeah. I think soy is all pollinator mm -hmm. pollinated. Exactly. That's like most of our food. Right. Yeah. It's like all our staples. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. And then I think um, a big part of that, too, is when we think about if you as the farmer are out there planting your food and applying all the inputs that you think that that cropping system requires, um, depending on the actual management system you have, that can determine how effectively different pollinators can do their jobs. And I guess what I mean by that is the larger scale we're growing specific foods, the harder it becomes for pollinators to thrive. Um, when we look out over a field of food, we see this really lush, verdant space often. But it's mm -hmm. only providing food to pollinators when it's actually in flower. Um, and that means that it could just be a couple of weeks. You know, if you have one particular crop growing for the, big, the majority of the year, that might only produce flowers for a couple of weeks, which means the rest of the time, all of those acres devoted to growing that crop no longer provide any food resources for pollinators. So to us, it looks like food, but to the pollinators, it becomes a food desert. So I know a little bit about this, but can you tell me kind of how the beekeeping industry differs from like North America versus Central America in your experience? Definitely. I think um, the easiest way to look at it is what industry beekeeping actually serves. So when we uh -huh. think about keeping bees, we tend to think about honey and other hive products. So beeswax, mm -hmm. things like that. But actually in the United States, that's almost entirely um, sort of an antiquated way of looking at our beekeeping industry. Um, our honey industry in the United States is a, is a few million dollars a year and our pollination services industry is in the billions. So mm -hmm. really almost all of the commercial beekeeping operations are going to be organizing their business around providing pollination services to specific crops. In a lot of the rest of the world, um, there's still a, a lot of money to be made in actually harvesting honey and other hive products. Uh, certainly in the developing world, in sort of a more smallholder farmer context, uh, the value is more going to be in, in harvesting honey as opposed to uh, moving bees around to provide a pollination service. Um, because as I mentioned, different crops are only, of course, going to be flowering for certain parts of the year. And so to effectively make a living providing pollination services, uh, you now actually have to move the bees from place to place so that you're making money keeping those hives year round. 
Yeah, there's people who like that's their full time job, right? It's just like semi trucking bees around and then parking them next to farms. Exactly. They've actually redesigned the most commonly used style of beehive to make sure that it effectively fits four beehives to a pallet, which means that they can more efficiently transfer those bees around the country. And I'm speaking to you from the Central Valley of California, which is where Mm. I think 80% of the world's almonds are grown at the moment. And almonds Mm. are a crop that does require pollination. Honeybees are really effective pollinators for almonds. And so uh, more than 60% of the commercially kept bees in the country were all here in the Central Valley uh, for the last couple of months. They show up in uh, in February and they leave in April to be here to provide that pollination service as the almond orchards are flowering. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm now curious, uh, billions with the bee jokes aside. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> Yeah. But, um, I'm curious about the behavior of bees now because if i'm if i have a truckload of bees and i just Mm -hmm. sort of open the windows i wonder how do i know all the bees are going to come back okay so that's a great question i would say first of all don't be in a truck full of bees (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) just a like a crash course in in best practices for (laughs) handling your um the semis where the bees are being transported are closed off although there are occasions where you know those trucks will have incidents on the highway and maybe lose some bees along the way um but when we're talking about honeybees specifically we're talking about an incredibly complicated social structure um that's sort of a matriarchal society designed around one queen bee uh and then a number of different roles that the other female bees in that hive will play but they all really identify closely with their home base. So they come back to their hive every evening. And in fact, they're just out foraging for short periods of time throughout the day. Uh, so they do really have a, a very much a, a, like a homing device in them. So they come back every day to their hives. Um, when we're talking about native pollinators, they also will have some kind of home base, but their structures are really different. So they might live um, in a solitary way, or they may have a very small social structure, so a smaller family group that all live mm-hmm. together in um, often a some kind of hole in the ground or some kind of cavity within a, um, twigs or trees and little things they can burrow into and stay out of the way. Very cool. Yeah. Allie, you were saying something earlier. Oh, yeah. So I, yeah, I was just saying my first impression really of the Central Valley was I got invited on like a tour of, of different like seed companies and nut farms mm-hmm. in the area. And I like, I knew that it was like most of the food from the country came from that area but it was just staggering to like walk around an almond farm and just see miles and miles of of trees and ugh, i don't know it's it's like real i mean you can say these numbers but like when you actually see it and when you see like the scale of it and especially like i've seen documentaries and i've seen a lot of journalism around like the scale of this pollination industry it's just kind of unbelievable even if you like see it yourself it's still kind of hard to comprehend just the massive hugeness of it. I had exactly the same experience where I, again, sort of had those numbers in my head and understood that this was a big part of this industry. Mm -hmm. But then once you actually come here, and especially when you uh, are around in the late winter, early spring, as the almonds are blooming all at once, you really get this incredible visual cue of just how massive this industry is, where you can just drive down the interstate for hours and see endless lines of trees um, all in bloom at the same time, which again, really drives home the idea that these food resources are available for this incredibly brief amount of time. 
And one crop has really taken up a lot of the real estate in the whole area. Yeah. I also, I remember I I got acquainted with what I didn't realize was the Northern California accent (laughs) where I was saying I was going to go visit an almond farm. And they said, oh, you mean an almond farm? I absolutely can't and won't think how I say almond, but I absolutely know what you're talking about. I can't do it. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing, I think. I know. It took me a while to figure out what they were talking about. <laughs> well, now I'm sort of wondering if, let's say you have a, a crop of flowering plants <laughs> and there are no bees, Will they, they don't get pollinated, I guess, so they don't grow, they don't multiply. Uh, What's worst case scenario there? I think the worst case scenario, yeah, is that uh, there's no pollination taking place. And then that sort of is the end of the life cycle for that particular plant. In the short term, we have a lot of solutions or workarounds, I guess. You know, if a farmer doesn't get a particularly good fruit set in a particular year, obviously they can go out and buy more seed or they can. Uh, you know, employ different management uh, practices in their orchards and and ensure that they'll get better uh, production in the following year. But longer term, if we're not getting um, satisfactory pollination services, uh, say in crops where people are actually producing those seeds to sell to other farmers, that could have pretty catastrophic uh, outcomes. Yeah, I think that there's some farming systems, like large scale farming systems in China now, where there's just no pollinators available. And so they have to employ actual humans to go around. They have like ostrich feathers. So and they hand pollinate all the all the flowers. I recently heard that there's actually a little bit of a different that, that we have an impression that that's what's taking place. Oh, really? Actually, there are plenty of pollinators. But because for whatever reason, when a lot of the larger orchards um, in China were put in, there wasn't a mm. lot of um orchard management knowledge floating around at that time. And so they actually just planted their varieties in such a way that pollinators have a hard time cross-pollinating. And so it's actually oh. cheaper to ha- hire people to go and hand pollinate those trees than to just tear out those orchards and start again. Um, because with a lot of our, uh, our different crops that require insects to do the pollination, you actually need different varieties next to each other to offer some cross-pollination um, in order to get successful fruit set. So you can't just have exactly the same plant next to each other. Um, and in fact, when we're looking at those that sea of almonds that we were talking about, every few rows will be a slightly different variety of almond. Mm. And that's what the bees are kind of offering us is bringing the pollen from one variety across to another one. So are, are you now sort of talking about a, a monoculture versus uh, diversity or is that a different thing? No, this would still constitute a monoculture. We're just looking at, you know, like say five rows of one specific kind of almond and then a sixth row of a, just a different variety of almond. They're all pretty much going to be blooming at exactly the same time, but they, um, different trees just sort of reproduce in different ways. Different plants have different requirements for how they reproduce. And almonds are an example of something that does need cross-pollination uh, from a slightly different variety. But when you're looking at it, it's still just going to look like, you know, one big farm of almonds. But the pollinators like it when the plants be different. <laughs> the pollinators would prefer if there were no, you know, very little duplication of, of crops. Pollinators, like anyone else, have dietary preferences. And so there are certain things that they'll go to um, before they'll go to other things. 
Um, certain orchard managers have really hard time when uh, dandelions are blooming underneath their fruit trees because the bees would way rather go to the weed growing underneath the tree than the actual flower on the crop that they're trying to get to pollinate. Um, but I, in an ideal world for most of our pollinators, you would want a huge diversity of crops because of, again, that bloom time where they're going to have food resources scattered throughout the year, as opposed to the more artificially managed uh, bloom times that we have in monoculture settings where our crops are only blooming for this really short window and then no other food is available for a long period of time. And almonds actually uh, are a particularly challenging crop because they bloom so early in the year uh, that mm-hmm. most of our pollinators, the native pollinators here, will sort of start to wake up and, and come out of winter mode thinking like, wow, look at all of these incredible food resources available to me. Uh, but then once the almonds are done, there's really nothing else in bloom for quite a while in the Central Valley until certain weeds and things start blooming that are available to them. So they have this huge dip in the food that's available to them, which can make it really hard for them to make it through the year. So is that what the majority of like bee population loss is from? Is just that loss of like habitat and food source over, over the year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's sort of two different things going on, really. We do have um, huge losses in honeybee populations as well. And I don't mean to to make light of the the declining populations of honeybees, but we also have this uh, huge diversity of pollinators who I think are often overlooked, just because we're not as familiar with them, that are, uh, if anything, suffering a lot more. Uh, currently. Mm. They're they're the ones that are really taking a hit. Um, And a lot of different factors are combining to to really impact their populations. A big one is, you know, that as I mentioned, they tend to live in little burrows and cavities. And the more we try to till our fields and kind of create uniformity and compact that soil as we're driving tractors over it, the more we're removing all of the little um, spaces that they like to burrow into. Uh, we're also, again, removing all of that diversity of plant life. So they don't have anywhere, not only do they not have things to eat once our crop stops blooming, they actually don't have anywhere else to live. So they can't create little nests um, in the cavities of stems and things where they prefer to nest. And so the less place they have to live, obviously, the less they're able to to stay in this area. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you know if um, if broad scale pesticides, so like pesticides that will basically attack anything that is in the field, do those also have a big impact or is it primarily just like habitat and food loss? I think the, the things that the, the factors that people feel really certain about are going to be habitat and food loss. I think there's, mm-hmm. a, there's you know, a growing body of research on, on the roles that different kinds of pesticides are playing in the declining health of different pollinators. I think it's, to me, it seems crazy to assume that pesticides aren't going to have some kind of impact on the mm-hmm. invertebrate communities that are living in these environments. That's kind of what they were designed to do. So there's no way that it's not having some kind of health impact. But I think the specifics um, are only starting to get identified. Um, mm-hmm. One researcher I was talking to a while ago said that what he has started to assume is that the pesticides themselves are not necessarily um, a, a huge factor in in impacting the health of these pollinators, but it's more like you know if you were on a medication, say that required you not to drink alcohol and you did anyway, the combined effects of both the medication and the alcohol are going to be so much more extreme, and that's kind of what our pollinators are grappling with. Like they have um, 
you know, this one thing that's already affecting them. And then that can kind of exacerbate the effects of something else. And so the combination of those different uh, challenges they're facing can, can really get kind of exponentially worse. I mean, I guess just sort of imagine only being able to eat once a week and then getting poisoned on another day. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then in terms of our, our honeybees uh, themselves, you know, they're also going through an incredibly rapid decline in population. Um, and there's a lot of factors going on there as well. I think one is that, as I mentioned, you know, the majority of honeybees commercially managed in the United States all come to the Central Valley in the early spring. And then they're put back on the semis and they're taken elsewhere around the country. Uh, and then once February rolls around again, they'll come back to the Central Valley to, again, pollinate those almonds. And, and what that looks like is really that we're establishing very efficient vectors for different diseases. So we're moving every pest and, and disease that affects honeybees really efficiently around the country so that they're infecting everybody. Oh, yeah. I never would have thought about that. Yeah. And because almonds are such a huge industry, everyone wants to be part of, of the almond game, which means that we're kind of rounding up every bee in the country as much as possible, giving them an opportunity to contaminate one another, and then you know dispersing them to contaminate any other bees that didn't actually come to the Central Valley. So we really efficiently designed a, a, a <laughs> terrible uh, yeah. place for our honeybees. Sounds like they're having a really rough go of it. Wow. Exactly. So what is what is the solution? Should we all get our own honey beehives and start keeping pollinators in our backyards? So the best way I've ever heard it described is that the idea of keeping honeybees in an effort to save pollinators is the equivalent of keeping chickens in order to uh, save the birds. Essentially, <laughs> we would be looking at, you know, honeybees are, are introduced, right? They're all actually European and they were brought mm. over with many of the old world crops because they're really efficient pollinators of those particular crops. Um, but they're not native here. Um, every sort of part of their presence in the, in the Americas is sort of constructed in order to fit in with our uh, conventional system of agriculture. Um, that being said, our conventional system of agriculture is dependent on honeybees. And so the solution can't really be like, let's get rid of all the honeybees in the Americas and, and start relying solely on native pollinators. Mm. With that in mind, there are some native pollinators that actually do provide incredibly efficient uh, pollination services. And there is some uh, effort now going on to, to come up with sort of an infrastructure to get those particular species of bees to provide more pollination services where they're needed. Um, and then, you know, even um, the introduction of hedgerows or just little areas with a bit more food and, and housing resources for native pollinators is going to, uh, again, boost the pollination services. So um, some bees are generalists and some are very specific to certain crops. But if you can host a diversity of pollinators in a farm setting, they'll all contribute at least some degree to, uh, to some aspect of pollination um, on your farm. So there are a lot of efforts that can be done to kind of diversify what we're relying on uh, in order to mm -hmm. pollinate our crops. That makes sense. And the idea of a hedgerow, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like the idea of instead of having two like adjacent five acre plots of soybeans, having two adjacent five acre plots of soybeans with like a strip along that that's like maybe five feet wide that's like just mixed hedges and trees and flowers and just native plants that kind of breaks up that like continuity of the two crops 
Exactly. And those can really be designed to be supportive of native pollinators. Uh, Again, providing more floral resources that are spread out throughout the year. And then um, if they're not tilled in the conventional way that perhaps the rest of the farm might be, uh, again, providing more um, more spaces for those pollinators to live. So is this is this just something that no one ever thought about? Or is this a socialization thing? Because I know when I was a kid, I was terrified of bees. <laughs> and if you had told me that there were fewer bees in the world when I was a kid, I'd be like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I think that's a great question. I mean, I often feel surprised by how little pollination is actually talked about even in when you're studying agriculture as I am. Uh, I think it's sort of a weirdly overlooked part of the conversation when we're looking at how we grow our food. And I don't totally know why that is. Um, I do think that in the last decade or so, as as bee populations have started to noticeably decline, I think we've all seen them sort of enjoy a moment of celebrity, right? Honeybees have become this pretty sort of charismatic and um, news grabby uh, animal. And so we pay a lot of attention to them now. And they have kind of more of a a following. People are more of a fan of bees, I think, than they used to be. Because you see all those like save the bees kind of campaigns going around now. Yeah, I think Instagram really has me pegged because all of my Instagram ads right now are like t-shirts that say like save the bees. Oh, mine too. Plant for pollinators. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I was walking down the hike and bike trail uh, the other day. And I saw some bees uh, buzzing around the base of a tree, and I just kind of looked at them and go, you go, you go, little fellas. You go, bees. Doing the good work. Do your thing. I think um, one one sort of part of the solution is to try to spread that feeling of goodwill we have as as a country now to include a little bit more than just the honeybees that are being commercially managed or even backyard bees. Um, Mm -hmm. And where we can kind of learn that bees look a lot of different ways and, and it's not just the honeybee or maybe the bumblebee that we that we recognize easily that are out there doing that good work that we want to salute. Um, and that's just going to come through education and outreach and making sure people um, have resources to learn a little bit more about the different animals that are playing a part in making sure we have food to eat. Somehow, I don't know how, but I feel like flies are going to be a much tougher sell for the consumer. Oh, definitely. But also, <laughs> a lot of bees look a lot like flies. You know, there's that's a true. identification problem too. And flies have such a bad rap and they're really bringing things down for the bee community, I think. That's true. It's true. <laughs> Although, you know, bees had a pretty good image upgrade. So maybe we can do that for flies. That's true. Maybe they'll be the next, the next wave. I mean, there was a bee movie. Maybe there, uh, I guess there was a fly movie, but it wasn't quite yes, the same. That's true. Someone get Seinfeld on the phone. I didn't see the bee <laughs> movie, but I sort of feel in my heart that that couldn't have helped us too much. <laughs> <laughs> so other than, other than like really advocating for native pollinators and recognizing that all pollinators have a space in the revolution of mm-hmm. agriculture, is there any like other takeaways or other action items that you want to bring up at the end? Yeah, I don't want to disparage people who keep honeybees. I love honeybees and I love keeping them. Um, and I think for those of us who do keep them, there is a an added level of responsibility now for us also to be as educated as possible in best practices for how to manage them. Um, mm-hmm. And that means, you know, there are a lot of beekeeping, um, different cooperatives and things like that, local resources that people can look into 
to learn more, uh, especially in terms of things like pest management, um, paying attention to the food resources that they have available for their bees, um, and trying to kind of spread any information that you have as much as you can in your community. Uh, because again, this population has become incredibly vulnerable. And a lot of that is due to um, pretty casual or sort of hobby management. Um, and that's not to condemn backyard beekeepers. I think that very casual management also takes place on the commercial level. Mm -hmm. But the more everyone keeping bees can um, take a little bit more responsibility on in terms of keeping their bees uh, as healthy as possible, uh, I think is certainly a step in the right direction as well. Um, I also uh, think it's really exciting that um, there have been some studies that show that actually urban environments now are providing um, excellent habitat for our native pollinators when you compare it to our agricultural landscapes. And that's because wow. in our urban areas, of course, are planting gardens and there are parks and things where there's a lot more of a diversity of uh, floral resources for pollinators. So I think that's kind of an exciting aspect. Uh, in that you don't have to be someone living out in the country. You can actually, you know, anyone who has even a little tiny bit of space can do something to promote healthier environments for pollinators. Totally. And it it has an added benefit of if you're promoting habitats for pollinators, you're also planting beautiful flowers. So. Right. It's a win-win. <laughs> so just, just real quick, um, it sounds like the agricultural industry has a very vested interest in the survival of pollinators in general, especially bees, because they do so much of the work. Do you know if that's an awareness or, or a conversation that's being had? I mean, I'm sure it's being had somewhere, but across the industry? Yeah, I think it's complicated. I think, you know, as I mentioned, there are some efforts going into introducing um, other species of bees that can be managed on a larger scale to, to again, provide those pollination services to sort of our monoculture, conventional agricultural approach. Um, that's really gaining some traction, uh, but it is slow going. I think farmers as a demographic, uh, like many of us, are resistant to change until they can really see that it's worth their time. Um, right. and they're going to be exposed to a lot of risk and potential losses if it doesn't work out. And so there's some hesitation, obviously, to switch over to kind of a new way of doing things. But as we kind of get more examples of, of how to effectively utilize other species of bees, I think that could definitely gain some traction. But it is definitely kind of a, a conversation that needs to happen more. There are some really interesting kind of public-private partnerships, too, that are starting to emerge. I know General Mills has done some mm -hmm. um, funding of um, putting in hedgerows and things like that to promote better uh, native pollinator habitat among their growers particularly. And I think initiatives like that are really have a lot of potential to start to affect a little bit of change. Definitely. Because when you get down to it, like the fastest way to affect large scale agricultural change is like one policy and two, having some kind of incentive from the buyers because they're going to be the hugest force in determining what the standard is for production systems. Exactly. And any opportunity that's going to remove that potential financial risk for farmers is a step in the right direction because they shouldn't be carrying, you know, the total burden of this project on their shoulders alone. Yeah. And often we sort of point fingers because they happen to be the people managing the land we're talking about, but it's a bigger it's a bigger problem than that obviously and comes from a lot more sources. So. Definitely. Yeah, and when your investments you know, investments into your profit source or take, you know, a year, two years, whatever, how many years things take to grow. It's, I imagine, a little harder sell. Definitely. 
Yeah, especially with some of these more permanent crops and and things like, you know, fruit trees. Uh, As I was mentioning, uh, they have to sort of plant those orchards in a certain way so that honeybees will efficiently pollinate those trees. And different bees have different habits. And so if you're trying to switch to a different species of bee as your primary pollinator, you may actually have to redesign a little bit how you're planting that orchard. And that's not a small commitment to be asking orchard managers to take on. Uh, So we need to be thoughtful about what we're asking people and figure out ways to uh, make that uh, more attractive and, again, increase those incentives that are available to them. Yeah, definitely. We talked in a couple of episodes before about, like, the potentiality of a policy solution for soil health incentives, like incentivizing farmers either with, like, insurance premium discounts or some other kind of fiscal incentive to build up their own soil health as an environmental service and an ecosystem service provider. I think that providing habitat for pollinators fits really nicely into that, like, where are we going to evaluate these natural, like, ecosystem services that are not necessarily providing the, 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 providing the farmers any income, but could actually require the farmer to decrease their their productivity or take some land out of production, you know, who is going to bear those costs and how do we create some kind of system that it works a little bit more fairly? Totally. And I think an exciting thing about that is that some of the the methods that would be implemented in order to provide other other services would sort of serve the same purpose on our end when we're talking about pollinators. So for example, mm-hmm. if you're looking at improving soil health in an orchard, um, some of that could be accomplished through cover cropping, but introducing specific cover crops into an orchard setting could also serve to provide more floral resources throughout the year to the pollinators who really run out of food pretty quickly in that setting. So if you're looking at different things that farmers could implement that could benefit them in, in several different ways, I think it's all the better. You know, you're just giving them more and more reasons to adopt these other practices. Totally. I totally agree. All right. Well, we be about out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Julia. It was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Yeah. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That was a low pun. That was low hanging fruit. (laughs) It was. was, Yeah. But will it be pollinated? You know, I don't know. Oh, my God. (laughs) If it's fruit, it's already been pollinated. <laughs> Let him have oh, it. Hey. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. If you'd like to support the show, please write and review us on iTunes and consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash one to grow on pod. If you'd like to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at one to grow on pod. The show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It's produced by Catherine RJ and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody. <laughs>